Good morning. I hope the words to that song were going through your head like they were for mine, because that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 7. It's the text we're looking at this morning, particularly uh, verses 21 through 23. As you're leafing there, should maybe mention, uh, thanks to Ray for chairing last minute, Tim is not feeling well this morning, and so we can pray for him as well, uh, as he's not with us. And I'll also put out a reminder, uh, it's been in the bulletin, uh, but a reminder for anyone who is interested in being part of that initial group of charter members uh, that we're going to proceed with later this spring, we would like your membership application forms in by next Sunday, please. There's a few at the back. Um, if you need one and there's not a physical copy, you can talk to one of us and we'll get it to you so you can print it off and fill it in. But we would like those by next Sunday so that we can start processing uh, through that. And we are going to have a very happy celebration here later this spring once we are able to start with a group of charter members. So please keep that in mind. All right, if you're in the Matthew 7, 21 to 23, then I'll ask you to stand as we read God's word. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And that's the reading of God's word. You can be seated. I will admit that for me personally, this is the most terrifying portion of Scripture. For me personally, and to preach it is no small task. So you can pray for me as you're sitting there. Because the question of our assurance is something that many, many dear Christians struggle with. There's many questions. Can we have assurance of our salvation? And if so, how? And how do we understand our assurance of salvation in light of a text like today's, which is clearly a warning against false assurance? In the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church taught uh, that assurance was limited to a special group, those who did works of supererogation, that is, those whose good works were surplus to how they needed to cooperate in order to be saved. But for most people, assurance of salvation would be an arrogant thing. We can have confidence, uh, you can have some degree of confidence, that is, but to say that you know that you are saved, to say that you know you're going to heaven, is seen as arrogant. And they are not alone in that assertion. Perhaps some of you have grown up being taught that you could never know for sure. Perhaps you were taught that grace requires your cooperation in order for it to become effective. And if so, assurance of salvation is tremendously limited. You can never be certain because you're never sure if you've cooperated enough. And so aside from the doctrinal clarity and the simplicity and the beauty that came about through the evangelism of the Reformation, pastorally one of the warmest and most assuring things that appealed to the masses of people who were on this treadmill of doing one thing after the other, trying to gain some level of assurance, was that a minister could say, yes, if you're resting in Christ, you can know that you are saved. You have eternal life. And here's the cool thing about eternal life. It doesn't run out in seven years or in 15 years or in a thousand years. It's eternal life. And yes, you can know, you can have it. But unfortunately, many of us continue to struggle in this area. Perhaps you know someone who struggles with assurance, or perhaps you struggle with it yourself. And so we're going to look at this morning how we can know that we are Christ's. And it is against the backdrop of what we just read, uh, this very sobering passage, that even here we have hints of how we can have assurance. People like to divide the world into different groups to help us think about them. Uh, One has proposed that the world can be divided into three groups of people, those who can count and those who can't. Someone else has suggested that the world can only be divided into two groups of people, those who can predict the next sentence. 
But I want to look this morning at four types of people that we have when it comes to assurance. We have those who are lost and who know they are lost. Maybe you know someone like this. They, are, they will acknowledge that they are at a war against God, that they do not have peace with God, and they are okay dying in that state. They're lost and they know it. It's quite simple. Then we have those who are saved and they know that they are saved. So this is where we all want to get to. This is uh, those who are truly saved and they have assurance of their salvation. That would be our wish, of course, for all Christians. That's where we want to get to. But there's two other types of people. There's those who are saved and don't have assurance. Okay? They're genuinely saved people. They've genuinely put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And yet gaining assurance is a real struggle for these people. And lastly, we have the, the group that Jesus is rebuking this morning. And that's those who are lost. They are at war against God, and yet somehow they have the assurance of their salvation. They know they're going to heaven when they die, despite the fact that they are on the road to destruction. And the fact that this last group even exists has vexed me quite personally. It's been very unsettling for me at different times. That if I have assurance, and I know false assurance is possible, how do I know my assurance is real and not fake like these people? We're going to look at this a bit closer. So Jesus starts in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And these false professors of Christianity use language that tends to convey closeness and intimacy and a saving knowledge of Jesus. And whenever a name is repeated twice in Scripture, it does convey a real sense of intimacy and a real sense of closeness. For example, when God stops uh, Abram from sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22, 11, he says, Abram, Abram. Okay, there's a closeness there. There's an intimacy. There's a friendship there. When Moses sees the burning bush, God calls out to him to take off his sandals. He says, Moses, Moses. Exodus chapter 3. There's closeness. There's intimacy as he approaches these men. Perhaps you remember uh, the night of Samuel's calling, when God calls him twice, Samuel, Samuel, in 1 Samuel 3. Or what about when David hears about the death of his son in 2 Samuel 18? And how does he grieve? Absalom, Absalom. There's a closeness, there's an intimacy. Jesus weeps as he's cursing Jerusalem's leaders. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Okay, there's a closeness. There's an intimacy there. And finally, there's many of these. I just pulled a few out. When Jesus is finally forsaken in Matthew 27, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, so there's all these examples of this repeated calling out, this doubling of a name to show the closeness and the friendship and the emotional connection. And so when these unbelievers face the judgment of Christ and they say, Lord, Lord, their lips are suggesting a closeness and an intimacy and a friendship that frankly is not there. Okay, not everyone uh, who says this with their mouth is a true believer, as is quite obvious. Verse 21 shows that believers and unbelievers alike are able to mouth the same words. We can both say, Lord, Lord. And this isn't saying here that we as Christians should not profess our faith. Of course we should. Uh, but the, the, the root of the matter should be in us as we do it. It should be real. And so the follow-up test that Jesus gives here in this judgment is that if the profession of faith is real or not. Okay? And it's crystal clear in Scripture that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so when Jesus does this test of seeing uh, whether they are doing the will of his Father, he is not adding an additional condition to salvation. Emphatically, not. Rather, he's describing the fruit that comes from real salvation. Right? And we see this all over in Scripture, but perhaps most clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, makes this cause and effect relationship crystal clear. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so our works have no bearing on whether we get saved or not. If there was even 1% left for our effort and our contribution, Paul says we could boast. But boasting is excluded because it is all by grace, not a result of works. And then in verse 10 he goes on and says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So we see that doing the will of the Father is the evidence of salvation, not the cause of it. It's not a condition of salvation. It's the evidence after the fact. And even in our own passage here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, just a few verses earlier where Aaron was preaching last week, verses 17 through 20, it says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. That's how we recognize. It's not the cause. It's the recognition after the fact. The fruit is just a picture of the root. What's the matter inside the person? Okay? And so to, to carry through with Jesus' analogy of a tree and its fruit, an apple tree does not become an apple tree when it decides to start bearing apples. See how this works? The apples come naturally because of the root of the matter. By nature, this is an apple tree. Therefore, with time, apples will come out. Root, then fruit. The outward visible sign is the, the, the physical manifestation of the nature of the change that has happened inside the thing, or in this case, the person. So those who are remaining in Adam show themselves with their unrighteous deeds, and those who are in Christ show themselves with their righteous deeds. This language is picked up in a bit of a different way by Jesus' brother James in his epistle, that we all know that without works, our faith is shown to be dead. Right? And to switch the metaphor again, Luther often spoke of this. He says, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Because with that faith comes a new nature, a new heart that desires, out of gratitude, to live a godly life. So yes, faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Change has happened. Fruit will start to come. And so the closeness that's demonstrated in the Lord-Lord language is either going to be genuine and demonstrated by real godliness, or it will be flattery and shown for the farce that it is, with lawlessness. In verse 22, Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And so Jesus presses further on describing those who are lost and yet have deluded themselves into thinking that they are assured of their salvation. These are the frauds and the disingenuous fakers who seem to genuinely believe that they're saved even though they're not. They're naming the name of Jesus, but they're denying his power. And the so-called fruit that they're appealing to actually isn't the kind of fruit that comes from a changed nature. It's more like the plastic... Whose grandma had that bowl of plastic fruit on her table? Right? It kind of looked nice for Sunday. It was this waxy fake fruit. It wasn't the real deal. Okay? That's the kind of fruit that these people have. It's not the real deal. Okay? It's fake. Okay? It's like your grandma's fake wax fruit on the dining room table. And you'll also notice that these false professors get the relationship between fruit and root backwards. When genuinely people stand before the judgment throne of God, the only plea that they're going to make is Christ's blood. That's all they can appeal to. Christ has saved me. Their sin has been taken away, and the righteousness of Christ has been imputed onto them as a covering. But notice what these people are appealing to in judgment. These people are not appealing to the work of Jesus Christ. They're appealing to themselves. They're appealing to things they've done. They're claiming themselves as their own defense. And they're appealing to these so-called signs and wonders that they had performed. And particularly what's mentioned here is prophesying, casting out demons, and many mighty works. And the fact that this is immediately what they appeal to is a proof that they have failed to understand the gospel. They're not appealing to Christ, they're appealing to themselves, to outward things. And not only this, but the things that they're appealing to are not necessarily good works in themselves. They're signs and wonders. And it's true that in many times where God has intervened dramatically in history to move the purposes of redemption forward, he sends up messengers, prophets and apostles and so forth, and he validates their ministry with these prophetic sign gifts. That's why they're called sign gifts. They're signs of prophets and apostles. And when he's done this, he has, like I said, validated the authenticity of these messengers with miraculous signs. But even when we think about this outworking of the biblical miracles, it's not like they're happening on every page of the Bible. These are special events. They're clustered around Moses and the Exodus, They're clustered around the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and then lastly, around Jesus and his apostles. 
And so by these people suggesting that they're performing this level of works, they are putting themselves in some pretty significant company. And by the end of verse 23, not only is Jesus unimpressed, but he calls them workers of lawlessness. So not only are these not righteous deeds, these are lawless deeds. And all of this is coming on the heels of Jesus' warning about false prophets that we just saw in verse 15, going back a little bit, who come in sheep's clothing but are really wolves. These people are counterfeits and their signs are lying signs. They're not genuine. And then, as in times past, the devil offers his own set of counterfeit signs and wonders. And this has been true at least since the time that Moses and Aaron were before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh marshaled his own magicians to rival the signs and wonders of Aaron and Moses. So this itself does not show the genuineness of their faith. Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage, says that in my name we cast out devils. That may be too. Judas cast out devils and yet was a son of perdition. A man might cast devils out of others and yet have a devil, nay, be a devil himself. See what he's saying? If you're looking at Judas, it looks like he's the real deal. But Jesus says he was a devil from the beginning. There was no point at which Judas was the real deal. He was a devil from the beginning, according to Jesus, and yet outwardly, it probably looked pretty similar. False teachers, both then and now, seem drawn to the spectacular. They're drawn to the stage. They're drawn to the limelight. And so these men typically are not content to preach the gospel or to instruct people in normal, godly living in the fruits of the Spirit. They prefer to go to the flashy things, to draw attention to themselves with spectacular displays, with their lying signs and wonders. And this is why Jesus condemns their work as being lawless. And our false teachers today still generate this kind of interest, and it's almost hard to believe, in light of the testimony in the Bible and through history, all these scam artists, that people still go for this stuff. But they really do. And at the risk of not sounding nice, I think it's important sometimes to name some of these things. I haven't watched the interview yet, but uh, on Mike Winger's uh, YouTube channel, uh, he's got some people that have come out of the Bethel movement in California, uh, and this is nothing new. There was a while back, I remember, uh, some people at Bethel claiming that there was this anointing of the Holy Spirit and this gold dust kind of descended on them during this euphoric worship event. And it sounded great, but we all know that with certain lighting, with certain music, certain progression of music, you can get people in this almost a euphoric trance, and they're not thinking straight. And when this gold dust comes down, it looks like this is something really supernatural. And yet it wasn't long after that event that the guy who was hired to put gold glitter in the ductwork and turn the blower fan on at the right moment when the Holy Spirit descended finally came clean. It was a scam. You build people up into the state of emotional euphoria and then you play a trick on them. Maybe some of you have seen the false prophet Todd White going around and this is one of these guys, he just loves people. He just loves them, guys. Okay? And he'll go and he'll ask people if they have back pain and who doesn't. Uh, and it always turns out that it's because one of their legs is longer than the other. And so he soaks them in prayer and he does this leg lengthening thing and miraculously their short leg always grows by about a quarter of an inch. And if you watch the American Gospel movie, you can see how he does this. This is a trick that these revival tent preachers have been playing since the 1800s. You sit people down in a certain posture and you wiggle, making the legs look uneven and by the end they're even. A miracle didn't happen, but certainly people are convinced by this kind of stuff. I could mention others. What about Benny Hinn? Goes up on stage and he cures only the non-verifiable illnesses that you can't verify on stage. Right? No one can prove or disprove that cancer went away on stage. And yet these moms who bring their kids in a wheelchair to see Benny Hinn because they've lost all hope, maybe there is something to this. Maybe Benny Hinn will heal my child. And those wheelchair kids always get left down low. That shouldn't just say that this isn't true. That should make you angry. Why don't these people go to the children's hospital and clean it out? Why do they instead need to take people's money to do a scam? on everybody. It should make us angry. And this is exactly the kind of stuff that Jesus warns us about. One of my personal favorites was uh, two false teachers. This is on YouTube. It's a great clip. Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis, who are both dyed-in-the-wool false teachers, talking about why they need to raise $65 million for a private jet. 
And Kenneth Copeland's argument is that if he flies commercial, there's people around him. And he's trying to do ministry, and people come and ask for prayer. And I'm talking to the Almighty, and these people come and touch me. And you can't do ministry, in his words, in a tube filled with demons. That's why you need to send a check to his ministry so he can buy a private jet, so he can commune with the Almighty. And not only that, he has his pilot's license. He likes to fly around. Uh, And his wife said one time they had encountered a storm that Ken was flying through that a commercial pilot wouldn't have. And because through their words of faith, they're able to control the weather, uh, she just prayed the storm away. And they couldn't have done that on commercial. So again, please send a check. And watching that with one of my cousins who's got a great sense of humor, he just looked and he said, well, call me old-fashioned, but I kind of think it's the man's job to control the weather. (laughs) Okay? But these people are scam artists. And they've got all these emotional stories. And they know how to manipulate with music and lighting and so forth. But these are lying signs and wonders. These are not genuine prophets and apostles. These are scam artists. And Jesus hates it. None of these men are showing that the way how we ought to love each other. None of them are teaching you how to plug in and make a local church healthy and how to use your gifts in the service of God and neighbor. Or how to put death and or how to put to death lust and anger and this type of thing. Rather, what they're doing is getting people onto an experience of treadmill, a treadmill of experience and excitements and tricks that just makes you a slave to more and more rather than pointing to gospel fruit. And so their profession of faith clearly is not the same thing as the possession of faith. And that's really the main takeaway here today. The profession of faith and the possession of faith are not necessarily the same thing. These guys are appealing to their own works, and the fact that these so-called good works are usually of the flashy, showy kind that are pretty good at generating income, what we have is a picture of self-righteous people. People who would rather be represented by themselves and their own fake fruit in front of God than to be represented by the great attorney, Jesus Christ. There's a saying in law that goes, a man who defends himself in court has a fool for a client. And isn't that true? If we're going to go to God's courthouse represented by me, myself, and I, this is a failed project. Okay? We need to trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. As the song says, we claim Jesus Christ. That's how we plead in the courtroom of God. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Imagine those terrifying words. You're waltzing into God's courtroom, knowing for sure that you are saved. And Jesus says, get out of here. I don't know you. Terrifying. And we need to feel the weight of it. False teaching scam artists ought to make you angry. Whether these unbelievers went to bed each night knowing that they were frauds, or whether they were genuinely self-deceived, and both are possible, they seem to enter God's courtroom with the expectation of gaining entrance to heaven. And so here it is that Christ himself casts them into the outer darkness. Christ has been entirely unimpressed with their pretend plastic fruit. He knows that they don't belong to him, and this is evident in the fact that they've appealed to the sinking sand of their own works instead of to the rock-solid righteousness of Jesus Christ pleading on their behalf. Their deeds are not righteous fruit that has grown out of a changed heart and a new nature. Rather, it is a lawless kind of self-righteousness. It's a show that doesn't go deeper than the surface. These people have professed faith, but they do not possess faith. And as Christ sends them away, he also tells them that he has never known them. It's not that they once belonged to him, but then after a few wrong turns, he let them go or he lost them, as though a genuine believer is capable of unjustifying what Christ has justified. It says Christ never knew them. Just like Judas, they're devils from the start. And this is the point at which we can actually start to see encouragement for our own salvation. Christ did not lose these people. They never belonged to him. 
So it's not as though Christ is trying and failing to get some of his sheep safely home. He has promised they will make it. He shall hold me fast. Notice how we're not singing, I will hold him fast. He will hold me fast. Okay? I often think of a little kid in a big city, and you're crossing this busy road, and, and you're holding on to dad's hand, and a little kid, you know, two, three years old, thinks he made it across because he's holding dad's hand. And that may be true. He is. But dad's hand is much bigger and much stronger, and dad's going to make sure that that little hand doesn't slip out of his. Okay? He will hold me fast. So how do we gain true assurance that we're not like these false professors, these lawless people whom Jesus never knew? And of course, there's two answers to this. There's the objective side of our assurance and the subjective side. And the objective side has to do with the reality of the matter. And the reality of the matter is never impacted by how we feel about it. I think it's, ask Howard, I think it's Ben Shapiro who says facts don't care about your feelings. Okay? Okay, so the objective reality doesn't care about how you feel about this. It's true whether or not you're feeling good or bad. It's just the rock-bottom proof. It's not going anywhere. It's not moving. Okay? It's not at the whims of our experience, how we're feeling today. But the subjective truth has to do with our inner state of heart and mind. And this is important because this is a gauge of our own inner peace that we're experiencing in the moment. And of course, in an ideal world, these two would be perfectly lined up our feeling and our experience of things would be perfectly lined up with what is objectively true. But in a fallen world, while we still struggle with sin, that does not always happen. Many genuine saints struggle deeply in this area, and I have known several in my life that I have every reason to believe that they are true, genuine saints. And yet assurance was a struggle for many. There's one especially compelling example of this in the poet and hymn writer William Cooper. Maybe some of you know the story of Cooper. And I'll read a little blurb here. William Cooper was one of the few hymn writers that was also recognized as a secular poet. This much-beloved and yet tormented literary figure was born in his father's rectory of Great Berkhamsted, England, on November 26, 1731. His father, George II, was a chaplain. His mother died when he was six years old. Cooper was first sent to a boarding school at Mark Yate. It was here he first began suffering from frequent emotional difficulties. He was transferred to Westminster where he was much happier. After graduating, he was apprenticed to a solicitor. In 1754, Cooper was called to the bar, yet he actually never practiced law. He was nominated in 1763 to the clerkship of journals of the House of Lords. Just as Cooper's career seemed assured, tragedy struck. When he was interviewed for the position, he suffered a panic attack. As a result, he was not awarded the position, a loss that led to a state of deep depression. He was treated at St. Albans Hospital and took up residence with the Reverend Morley Unwin in Huntington. During this time, his depression slowly lifted, and he developed a lifetime friendship with Unwin's wife. Unwin passed away in 1767, and John Newton author of the famous hymn Amazing Grace, persuaded Mrs. Unwin and her family, along with Cooper, to move to Olney, where he was the vicar of a small parish. Newton and Cooper developed a close friendship over the years and began a joint publication that became very influential, the Olney Hymns. During his depression, Cooper wrote one of his most beloved and controversial hymns, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. It was most likely written in 1771, first published in Conyers' collection of psalms and hymns in 1772, and republished by Cooper and Newton in 1779 for the only hymns. Based on Zechariah 13.1, On that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. The hymn is a meditation on the saving power of the blood of Christ. An unsuccessful major alteration in 1819 sought to make the hymn less graphic by changing the first line to From Calvary's Cross, a Fountain Flows. Hymnologist E.E. E. Ryder says this alteration forgets that what they, the offensive expressive graphic language, express is not only poetry, but the poetry of intense and impassioned feeling, which naturally embodies itself in the boldest metaphors. In 1773, two years into the Only Hymns Project, Cooper's brother died, and the poet relapsed into his deepest state of depression. He became convinced that God wanted him to commit suicide. He tried three times to kill himself, 
But each time something prevented him from carrying through. Cooper believed God had stopped him. Cooper said the next years came with a full realization of God's favor and were the happiest, most lucid years of his life. It was during this time he wrote his most famous secular poem, The Task, which received much acclaim. He was so overwhelmed by God's overruling providence for him to live that he was led to write his famous hymn on God's providence, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. In 1796, his dear friend Mrs. Unwin died. He suffered her loss so deeply that he went into a permanent state of despair. This led to his sickness from dropsy and his eventual death in 1800. You know anyone like William Cooper? A true saint, struggles, and then sees the light, and then struggles some more. Some of the letters that him and John Newton exchange are absolutely terrifying in terms of the, the emotional uh, state that Cooper was in. And his friend, John Cooper, or his friend John Newton just kept writing back, encouraging him, walking alongside him. But I'm sure many times it seemed unfruitful because his friend never pulled out of it for long. Okay? I believe William Cooper's in heaven and many people like him. And there's no doubt people like this in our lives. Maybe you're one. Okay? They struggle with assurance. They struggle with joy despite truly belonging to the Lord Jesus. A case like Cooper is the polar opposite of the people that Jesus has cast out. Those men were unsaved and had assurance. Cooper was a saved and struggling man who dealt deeply with lacking assurance. And the wonderful part about the objective nature of assurance is that it's settled in the counsel of God no matter how we feel. One way you can think about this, think, who's ever seen those old black and white grainy videos of people trying to fly for the first time? Right? And the video's always moving way too fast and there's kind of that tin piano sound, right? There's kind of tunes. Okay? And you see these people with a lot of bravado, lots of courage. Like, this time it's going to work. I'm going to jump off the cliff with these wings and this time it's going to work. Right? And they're all cocksure and they're, they're really proud, they're really, you know, really convinced. They've got a lot of faith in themselves. Now, does their level of confidence have any impact on whether their mechanism is going to work or not? None whatsoever. Okay? I don't care how confident you are. If you've got a failed instrument, you're going to be falling to the ground. You're not going to get airborne. But now think of someone who's got on, on a commercial flight for the very first time. Everything is safe. All the checks and balances are there. You're with an experienced pilot. This plane will make its destination no matter what. And yet somebody on that flight is flying for the first time and they're nervous. They're uptight. They don't trust it, right? They're grabbing the armrests. Uh, they don't feel good about it. And now I'll ask, does their lack of confidence have any impact on the destination of that flight? None whatsoever. None whatsoever. The strength of your faith is not what is decisive. The object of your faith is decisive. Okay, the one man is putting his faith in something that's not going to work. And no matter how confident he is, it's not going to work. The other one is putting a weak amount of faith in something that will work. Okay? So it's not the strength of our faith, it's the object of our faith. It is possible for genuine Christians to struggle with confidence, to struggle with assurance. But again, it's the object of our faith, not the strength or the intensity or the emotional euphoria from that faith that is decisive. And we learn about the objective nature of our assurance as we read scriptures. For example, in John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. A mass of humanity out of the world as a whole has been given to the Son, and those people will not fail to come to him in saving faith. And those who come to him in saving faith, he will never cast out. Jesus ends in heaven with the same people that he starts with. No dropouts. No one's forgotten. And those who believe that we are the ones who activate or cooperate in our salvation have a real difficulty here. If we are the decisive movers of our salvation, if I'm the one who got myself in, I can also get myself back out. If it's possible for me objectively to lose my salvation in the, in the future, assurance is something I can't actually have today. And this was described to me one time when I was struggling with my assurance that I should see grace like an umbrella. Okay, so God's grace is like this umbrella and it's raining outside and as I disobey, I move myself out of that grace. And as I obey, I move myself under that grace. And it seemed to make sense at first, but it was a temporary consolation for me. Because even if I'm standing under the umbrella of God's grace today, what if I throw it all out the window tomorrow? What if I throw it out in 15 years from now? 
In that kind of a system, you can never have assurance of salvation. The best you can do is to say, I'm saved at this moment in time. But at any moment in the future, I may be unsaved. Okay? My own struggles with assurance actually logically made sense given the paradigm I was working with. If I can throw it out, maybe I will. So the best I can do is go to bed tonight knowing tonight I'm saved and tomorrow we'll start over again. But that's not the way the Bible presents it. Christ will hold us fast. He will get us all the way home. We don't have limited assurance. We can have true assurance. And the Bible does present it like unbreakable links in a chain. We don't grab hold of grace with our will. Rather, our will is freed when grace grabs hold of us. And so once again, as is often the case, sound doctrine can be tested by how pastoral it is. How does it provide peace to an anxious heart? We read about this golden chain of redemption in Romans 8, where it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see these links in a chain, one after the other? And again, the mentioning of foreknown isn't God learning something that we did, The language matches Jesus talking about knowing these people that are coming in front of him. This isn't something that he learned looking down the future. It it conveys that intimacy, that closeness that he has for those who are his. In the Bible, when a man knows his wife, he's not just aware of her presence or seeing something she'll do. There's an intimate connection in view. In Amos 3.2, when it says, You only have I known... From all the families of the earth, God's not saying, oh, I didn't know about all these other nations other than Israel. He's saying, Israel is mine in a special way that the other nations are not. You alone have I known. Okay, so this isn't God learning. This is God setting his compassion and his grace on those who are his. So in this golden chain of Romans 8, we see one thing naturally leads to another. They're not all the same, but they're all pulling in the same direction. There's foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification and glorification. And once again, just like Jesus says in John 6, God ends up with the same group that he starts with. If one sheep goes astray, he's committed to going and getting it. He's committed to getting us home. So assurance is something, clearly, that the believer can have. And this is a doctrinal truth regardless of how you're feeling about it. So the objective truth of the matter is in Scripture. It's objectively true. Okay? Christ takes his who are his all the way home. This is regardless of how we feel about it. It just is because the word of God is certain. So the actual state of our salvation is objective. It's like a light switch. It's either on or off. And if you've placed your faith in Christ, the switch is on. But our experience, our assurance, works more like a dimmer switch, right? Sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's weak. Maybe you struggle back and forth a little bit. And this back and forth can have many causes. Sin and disobedience will suck our joy and dim our assurance. And this is why when David repents of his adultery and murder in Psalm 51, which is the greatest psalm of personal repentance in your Bible, he writes this. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He doesn't say restore to me the fact of my salvation, as though bad deeds got him unsaved and now he has to do enough good deeds to get him resaved. He says, restore to me the joy of it. The joy and the assurance are gone because he's been sinning. You can't have closeness with God when you're actively pursuing sin. So the psalmist asks for the joy of his salvation to come back. There's other causes for why assurance is difficult sometimes. Sometimes there's emotional and mental struggles which are not the result of any specific sin that keep us doubting and struggling. And I have certainly struggled with this a number of times in my own life. And this is one of the things that prompted me to re-examine in light of Scripture some of the things that I had picked up along the way. And I see that there's a great company of other Christians who have struggled greatly with depression and with struggle of assurance. And some of them are well-known preachers. You've probably heard me mention some of these names. Luther struggled his whole life 
he was a very volatile man, and sometimes he was really high, sometimes he was really low. Spurgeon just struggled with low-level depression his entire life. Spurgeon was never happy, despite the lion that he was, despite the, the, the joy-filled preacher of the gospel that he was. Deep down, there was a struggle and a depression his whole life. Martin Lloyd-Jones would be another case of this, who knows deeply what spiritual depression is like. But in these cases, when it's not the result of active sin in our life, trying harder, peddling faster, and looking deeper for sin in your heart isn't the answer because that's not the root problem. In these cases, what we have is a disconnect between the feelings that we have and the truth of the matter. And this is where it's often said that the greatest distance in the Christian life is the 18 inches from our head to our heart, where we know one thing to be true, but our heart causes us to doubt. And the best cure for this lack of assurance is to prayerfully immerse ourselves in the truths of God's word. Pray for your assurance. Pray for peace. And read your Bible knowing that this is God speaking to you. And just ask yourself, if you're struggling and then you read these promises of salvation, as you're reading the Bible, ask yourself, who can I trust ultimately? God and his unfailing word or this quivering heart of mine that's like water and it just kind of doesn't know where to go? Of course God's word is the more sure. Okay, So stay in scripture until you see that. Ask God to help you see it. And he is not harsh on those who are struggling. A whole book written by the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs is written on Psalm, or pardon me, on Isaiah 42.3 where it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. A whole book on depression and on the tenderness of Jesus when we're struggling is written called The Bruised Reed. It's worth reading. Read Romans 8 until it's in your bones. What can separate you from the love of God? And I don't know how many times I read this to my... Really, I had two grandmas that have died in the last few years. And I don't know how many times I sat and just read Romans 8 with them. And one of my grandmas in particular struggled so much with her assurance. And I just read Romans 8 over and over and over to her. And I trust she is in heaven. I don't know how much that assurance came on. But I trust she's there. I trust she had put her faith in the Lord Jesus and when you read a section like that, and just think, if life and death, if angels and rulers, if things present and things to come, and powers and height and depth or anything else in all creation cannot separate us from the love of God, your failing heart isn't going to separate you from the love of God either. No matter how clouded your mind may be. And so even when the darkness seems like it's never going to lift, God's promises remain just as strong. And sometimes, in a very strange and almost ironic way, the turmoil and the struggle can be a positive sign. Well, how can that be? How can it be positive? I'll tell you how. When I was a kid, I remember hearing once about the unpardonable sin at recess. And that seemed pretty scary. There's a sin that's unpardonable? I wonder if I've done it. I better find out what it is, because I don't want to do it, because there's no way back. And I was scared by this. And I was given a very specific understanding of what that unpardonable sin was, which I no longer understand it to be that way. Uh, But this was something I struggled with deeply. And of course, if you're thinking about something, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling trap, right? Uh, And I was just scared all the time. And then I would do these mental tricks. I pretended I was a punter in a football game and Satan's head came out of the ground and I'd kick it through the uprights. I don't know why grade three kids come up with the things that they do. But I was so scared of committing the sin and so worried that I had committed it. And then it struck me, you know what? If I had, would I care about any of this? No, I would not. Okay? If you're struggling with assurance, that means the lights are on. Okay? Someone who is hardened to the gospel doesn't care that they're hardened to the gospel. Someone who's hardened to the gospel doesn't care whether the lights are on or off. So if there's a struggle, that's actually a sign of life. That's a positive sign. Okay? If you were not Christ's, you wouldn't care about this. You'd be caring about something else. So in many ways, the fact that you're thinking about it, dealing with it, can be a sign of health. And so I want to leave you with this. If you're struggling with this, if you're scared that you are not in Christ, that you may be cast out, saying he never knew you, consider this. Those whom Jesus cast out did not have any of that inner turmoil. They weren't bothered at all with their sin as they approached him. They came in with an arrogant swagger and pride. They were those of whom we say in modern times, they were often wrong, but never in doubt.
Okay? Don't be those guys. Don't be the proud, arrogant man that's going to appeal to your own works when Jesus asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? Rather, when Jesus warns his disciples that one of them sitting at this table would betray him, the 11 innocent guys were the ones doing self-reflection. Think about that. Is it me, Lord? Is it me? Okay. Why? Because the lights were on. They were scared. They were thinking about this, but the lights were on. Their struggle with assurance in that moment was a sign that the lights were on. And if you're struggling with assurance this morning, I pray that it would be lifted and that you can walk on in full confidence, but also remember that your struggle isn't going to change the reality. Your struggle may very well be a sign that your heart is soft. So bury yourself in the scriptures. There is life. Stay in the scriptures until your heart gets strong and then stay there longer yet. So we've seen here, as Jesus brings the Sermon on the Mount to a close, he's warned his followers to be aware of the false teachers. He says that the fruit that we see matches the nature of the tree. And false teaching necessarily breeds pride, presumption, works righteousness, and self-sufficiency. And when those who have been corrupted by another gospel approach Christ, they do so always with a sense of self-confidence, self-assurance, and self-righteousness. Trusting in our own fake fruit, our own man-made righteousness, marches us straight into the wrath of God. A flattering tongue means nothing, and Christ will tell the proud man that he has no part in him, and never did. But to the bruised reed he will not break. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for your promises. Lord, and as we look at something so difficult, as those who claim your name yet clearly have no share in you whatsoever, Lord, and you show your sore displeasure, you show your anger with them in this text. Lord, I pray that that would not be true for any of us here this morning. Lord, I pray that each one knows you in a sincere, saving way. Lord, and whether assurance comes easy or whether it is hard fought for, Lord, I ask that you would give each one here, uh, not only your spirit to save them, but also that sense of assurance. Lord, and if those who are struggling with assurance here this morning or at other times, I pray there too that you would send other Christians to encourage, to help. Lord, I pray that you would ground us all in the scriptures, that we can see that your promises are unchanged by our feelings. You are committed to getting us all the way home, to getting us to glory. Lord, I pray that you would give us the discernment to see the false teachers the false professors, and that we would see to it that we have the real deal in our hearts. Lord, again, I want to uh, pray that your gospel would do its work in humbling the proud man and then also in binding up the weak one. Lord, thank you that you are tender with the bruised reed. You are tender with the smoldering wick. Lord, and I pray that we can leave your strength in knowing that your promises are sure. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand.
So the charge is this. The presumption of pleading our own righteous deeds when we stand trial in God's courtroom is as clear a demonstration of rejecting the gospel as blatant sin is. The grace of Jesus shows us our need and then covers us with his perfect righteousness. The proud man sees no need and hides behind the filthy rags of his own righteousness. The proud man doesn't know Christ, nor is he known by Christ. Jesus' warning here is meant to jar the proud man and not to break the bruised reed. The contrite, the humble, the repentant, the struggling saint can find comfort here because even amid Jesus' warnings is the reminder that he loses none of that which is his and that the showy displays of the proud are not righteous but lawless. The righteous fruit of a new heart often looks like seasons of struggled prayer, days of battling for joy as we learn to believe God's word. Let's commit ourselves this week to putting pride and self-sufficiency to death, to grounding our assurance in the blood of Jesus Christ and nowhere else, and to pray for and encourage others who are in a season of needing to fight for their joy right now. And I'll leave you with the benediction from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And go in peace.